You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Rana Tahir. Rana, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. Rana, I know you're in Portland, Oregon now, and we're going to be talking about your your writing today, and you're also going to read. I I want to just ask you first, since... uh, it always seems like kind of an auspicious moment. I've been doing these interviews for years, but this year, of course, is is really unusual. It's April 20th in 2021. Um, you've been in Portland. How how has it been? How is it now? And how has this been for your practice in the last year there? And I'm talking specifically about the, the pandemic's effect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's so strange that um, to really reflect on this past year, especially today of all days, um, as you probably know, right, the um, verdict in the Derek Chauvin case just came out. Um, and it's crazy to think that around this time last year, like the beginning of this time when the pandemic had first um, started, you know, Portland um, was one of the sites where there was a lot of protesting. And I had the fortune to be able to go out and protest um, against police brutality. And now it's, it feels strange to to be coming full circle and to get the verdict that we got today. Um, I'm still in shock and I'm, I'm still not sure how to process, but, um, you know, it's, it's just amazing that that happened on so many levels, but it's also deeply saddening that that's what it took to get justice. Absolutely. Yeah. That is a difficult thing to kind of digest, to get a perspective on, but in, in, in a way, yeah, that's, um, Right, the verdict came out today, and uh, um, and it's a, it's 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 both a relief and a and a kind of uh, I don't know I don't know how to frame it really. And it's interesting that you say you're not quite sure how to how to take that in. And in one way, it seems like finally justice is served, but it's also, for lack of a better word, something like like a triggering moment. It's it's so mm-hmm. disturbing to also realize that. Um, that that's the verdict and that, and that this is now um, a fact of how it's, of, of, of what happened. So, uh, so yeah, uh, a kind of time for celebration in some ways and tears mm-hmm. and all of that, but also, um, I mean, that's what you're saying, right? It's kind of hard to know how, how to react, whether to, to celebrate, to mourn, to cry, to, to dance, to, so, like, what, well, what do you do? It seems like it's not appropriate to celebrate in a way because we're talking mm-hmm. about the innocent death of an individual, but on, on, some, on many levels, it's a, it's a triumph. It's, a, it's an extraordinary moment in history. Yeah, I um, saw a tweet earlier today that just, I think, put it in perspective really well. Um, someone whose name I, I can't remember right now um, but this person had tweeted that their grandmother, who was watching the case, um, this case, you know, was 12 years old when Emmett Till was murdered. And that case came out, and obviously those murderers were acquitted. Um, and to just think of that, you know, it, it feels for those of us who obviously weren't there and who for those of us who these issues aren't felt as deeply, um, it feels like it was so long ago, but it's still within the lifetimes of so many people. It's just right. it's strange to think. There's just so much being held in this moment, I think. Um, 
And yet such a, it's such a beginning as well, right? There's still so much more to do. Hmm. That is true. There is so much more to do. Um, and, it, and, it, and, it, and clearly this hasn't, like, stopped the problem, but there's an awareness that's, that's raised. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so this is the moment. Yeah, that's true. This is a very unusual moment. That, that always happens with these interviews, or not always, but sometimes they fall on, on such kind of unusual or auspicious dates, and this is certainly one of them. Um, mm-hmm. So let's jump into your, your poetry. I know you're going to read a few things. Um, what, what is the first piece you're reading? Um, so this first piece is part of the series. I generally work in series. Um, I don't know why. That just seems to be how I function in my writing life. Um, and this is a series I started actually back when I was first writing poetry, um, when I was much younger. And it's based on the one of my all-time favorite books, um, Letters to Yesenin by the poet Jim Harrison, um, in which um, Jim Harrison was writing some poems that were letters to the Russian poet Sergei Yesenin, who um, killed himself. And Jim Harrison was dealing with his own depression and thoughts of suicide and was writing these letters or these poems to Yesenin about that. Um, I read his book when I was in high school, and it just fundamentally changed how I saw my own writing, how I saw poetry in general. Um, And so I started writing poems that were letters somewhat in response to the letters that Harrison was writing. Um, But this first poem is actually to Yesenin himself. Um, And I guess that's all the, the preamble that I need to give. Okay. Tiyasenin, our gut has been writing poems to you. Yesenin, if you are the heart, then I must be the hand, following orders to twist the knot and check the grip, for you taught me not to ignore your calls for rope. Resting with flowers made to look as though you were sleeping, but we know how alive you were, kicking your legs in that fanciful dance. You should have been left hanging. Your face in the coffin, a stifled cry. Heart, if you are crying now, hope is there. For Harrison and I will join you. For now, our body, our saga, begun with a rope, is twisting slowly, our feet barely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about that because that's also, uh, like you're saying, a form in itself. This type of of of, of dialogue, right? I mean, there's the, mm-hmm. there's the content of what you're saying, which which touches on so many things. But you were saying this is also um, a form of, of about about letter writing in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go, you go. So, so yeah, my, my question is, so, so just a, a talk, to talk a little bit about that, how did that get started and is there a context? You gave a little preamble that, that definitely spelled that out, but now it seems, um, especially in the poem, that there's really this relationship in, in, in a sense that, that seems we're, we're getting um, a kind of glimpse of. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting um, because when I, when I first started writing um, 
So the context of when I first started writing these poems to Harrison, I was um, in high school. I attended the Interlochen Arts Academy, which is a boarding arts high school in Michigan. And um, we started reading with one of my teachers, Michael Delp, um, a lot of Harrison's work. Um, and that book just spoke to me on such a level. Prior to that, I really hadn't considered myself a poet. Um, when I first enrolled in Interlock and was, and was accepted there, um, I had envisioned that I would be a fiction writer, I would be a novelist. Um, that was my goal back then. Um, it still is a goal to a certain extent. But, and I, I really, I hated poetry, actually. It was, it was, I had a very adversarial relationship to poetry um, because I didn't understand it in many ways. Um, but being at Interlock and I had the teacher, um, Teresa Skolan, who really opened my eyes to the possibility of poetry. And I started writing prose poems. Um, and it felt like a, a natural way for me to sort of transition from writing purely just fiction um, to getting into poetry. And then when I started reading Harrison's work, um, the poems are not necessary. I don't know if they would be counted as prose poems, the letters to you send in. Um, but as the book goes along, right, the lines get larger and larger where they, they essentially look like prose poems. Um, and so that's, that was really what got me going was um, knowing that my poetry could be a direct address. And in my fiction, I'd never really directly addressed anything. And here was this open door. Um, so really, I would write poems that were basically letters to Harrison about anything and everything um, in my life that was going on, you know, teenagers, there's just a lot going on <laughs> at that age. Um, and so it wasn't until I got um, later into college, you know, I was still writing all of these um, letters, these poems, that it really, it really did start to feel like a real relationship. Um, and this sort of mythos began to build around all of these letters. I love the way you describe that that you that you almost had um your 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 relationship to poetry initially was almost adversarial right it was it was something that um you you weren't open to and that's such a a kind of wonderful uh place to to move beyond or to transform and 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 especially through a through a teacher because you're saying poetry wasn't in, in your, your field of view at all. So, I mean, what was it exactly that suddenly won you over in such a big way when you were not only not interested, you were specifically disinterested, you know, that's, it's, it's, it sounds like just one of those, I, I want to ask more about that because it just is one of those wonderful moments that can happen with a teacher, with a mentor, when you think uh, something clicks, something happens, something shifts, something transforms right I mean that's exactly it I really just owe my poetry writing life to Teresa Skolan who is a wonderful poet in her own right um, and it was I think what it was there's there's a lot of um, aspects to my history I mean every writer brings every artist of any kind every person um, brings their experiences right to how they sort of digest the world, how they view the world, how they view their place in it. And my history, when I'd gone to Interlochen, um, I grew up in a home with, you know, I love my parents, but I did grow up in a home with um, severe domestic violence. And I never could share that with most people in my life. Um, 
you know, aside from my, my immediate family, nobody ever really knew what was going on. Um, and so when I went to the sporting school, um, I'm half a world away because my family was in Kuwait and I was in Michigan. And I, you know, she really encouraged me to, to write about those things. And it felt like, you know, a fictionalized attempt didn't sit right with me for some reason, which is odd because fiction was usually my go-to for anything. Um, but these prose poems were really heavy with um, personal symbology um, and just memories that I could just take snippets of and turn into images. Um, and that's really, I think, what opened the door for me in, in terms of poetry and just her encouragement and her ability to see that this was something that I needed. That's very powerful. And, and of course, you know, extreme like domestic violence is, um, is an incredibly difficult issue to tackle, not just personally, but also as a, as a subject uh, to, to approach. So the, the, the work for you, it sounds like from what you're saying, had a, had a kind of deeply personal significance right away and, uh, and perhaps um, is liberating the right word, a kind of liberating effect because it, it, it so directly pertained to your life. Yeah, I mean, I think liberating is is a great word for it. Um, you know, at the time, I didn't really have access to things like therapy, which I do now. Um, I highly love therapy, and I highly recommend it. Um, but I didn't have those tools before. And really, writing was my way of expressing um, what was happening to me and how I was perceiving it and how I felt about myself and my world. Um, and... You know, I, I do wonder, like, I don't think I would have survived without that. I think everybody needs that outlet. Um, and I'm lucky that I got mine. Right, because without that outlet, and, and, and now, you know, we're also talking about, um, like, therapy or, or analysis, without that, without that outlet, um, the suffering is much greater, essentially, right? Like, what what, what happens to us? It's it's a it's a um, it becomes kind of uh, a lost world, or what do you think happens? Because I mean, I'm an artist, and I certainly relate to this, and and I talk with only artists on here who who would relate to this. But I'm just thinking, without that, without that, um, without that, as, as you're saying, uh, a path, an avenue. Uh, I think you used a different word, but it's 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 hard to imagine because then things are there's much more suffering essentially, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about suffering and 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 liberation from that, right? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly it. I think um, you know, I, and this is really what a lot of the the poems that Harrison was writing to you sent, and then I was writing to Harrison in response, really dealt with, you know. Um, how do we handle when we feel like we don't have any lifelines left? What does that mean for us? Um, and in the process of writing those things, I, I realized now, I didn't realize then, but now I realize that I was really creating a lifeline for myself. Um, and I, you know, I think everyone, whether it's through art or anything else, um, I think the danger is not having something, anything, 
um, because you're right, the suffering is greater and it's, it's harder to handle. It's harder to deal with. Um, yeah, I just, I feel incredibly lucky, incredibly blessed to have found a path for myself. And I, I just hope that other people find whatever it is, um, some way to process the things that they are going through. So let's hear another poem. What's the next poem you're, you're going to read? Um, this is another one from that series of um, letters to Jim Harrison. This is letter to Jim Harrison four. So the first one was for Yesenin. It was to Yesenin. And this is one from the actual series of letters. A letter to Jim Harrison four. I know the tender work of tying knots, how ropes and hands can fold into themselves, how bodies can grow swollen on anything. The spider bite leaving my entire leg inflamed with barely a centimeter of skin. This is love. In Michigan, I counted ceiling tiles, measured their gravity against mine. He was lucky. He had the will. I thought of you in summer and my nose bled, my ankles hurt, the added weight of you. The sparrows you mention in almost everything must always be the same ones, ones you would watch beating against their chests, ready for flight to places only ropes could take us if you were truly willing. On the chair, you're not here to stop me. You're off looking for something you and I have already found. Love saved me the $2 I would have spent on rope already made. It could not save anything else. I look at pictures of him in his casket and think of the loves that killed him, the ballerina, the vodka, the poems. Or was it one of us that finally helped him over the edge? The distance between toes and the edge of a chair is nothing until you leap. But forget all that now. This methodical braiding of three strands leaves me panting at the muse, Yesenin. Thank you. Thank you. Um, That's very, very beautiful, very beautiful poem. Uh, the the word rope has come up a few times in that poem and once in the last. Uh, I don't know if that's just you know my own reading and I and, and I noticed that and pull it out, but it's it's such a a strong a strong uh, symbol that you've used in a, in a number of ways. Does that recur for a reason? Is that conscious using using a that particular word? I don't know why I'm, I'm mentioning that, but it just pops out to me and it seems very kind of evocative, you know, tying things together, of braiding, of pulling, of hanging. There's so many meanings to it. Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm glad you picked that up. It is a motif throughout. Um, and part of that, there, there are a lot of reasons to that. Um, the most obvious reason is that um, Yusenin hung himself and that's how he died. Um, but you know, the other things about, about the braiding, about um, sort of the ties that bring us together, um, you know, again, it, it felt and it still feels very much like I have this very real relationship with, like, this Yusen and then this Harrison in my head. And so um, I think the rope eventually, when I was first writing these series, it was very literal in terms of, like, you know, a rope was part of the story and therefore a rope was in the poetry just naturally. Um, but as I started writing more of these, it really did turn into that, um, the idea of a braid, 
the idea of bringing things together. Uh, I love that. Yeah, that's so interesting um, and very beautiful. So there's there's one more, and this is the 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 past two that you just read have been published. Is that correct? Yes, they have. Uh, and and where where were those published? Um, those were published in Catch Literary Magazine. It's an undergraduate college magazine out of Knox College, where I went to school for my undergraduate degree in Galesburg, Illinois. And what is the next poem you're going to read? Um, this next poem actually is unpublished as of right now, or I suppose reading it here will count it as published. <laughs> um, but this is from another series um, that I worked on. I mentioned earlier that my family's in Kuwait. Um, my family's originally were Pakistani, um, but my grandparents moved from Pakistan to Kuwait both, on both sides of my family, so both my mother's parents and my father's parents. Um, and so my my parents were raised in Kuwait, and then my siblings and I were raised in Kuwait. So really, third generation that we've lived in Kuwait. Um, and my parents, and actually also my grandparents, were and my aunts and uncles and cousins were refugees during the Gulf War in 1991. Um, so this is when Iraq invaded and occupied Kuwait um, for about six months, I believe. And then there was, in 1991, the coalition forces came in and liberated Kuwait. Um, but my parents lived through that, and I was born in the immediate aftermath of that war. So it always felt like a really big shadow um, sort of hovering over my life, like this idea that there was this war, there was this occupation, and, you know, it's still a very big wound in Kuwait. Um, and I remember, especially in... And I'm sorry, this is turning into such a long preamble. Um, no, not at all. Keep going. It's, it's, yeah, I, I want to hear that. So, yeah, no, no, yeah keep going. So. Okay. Um, yeah, so basically in the um, run-up, like as I was growing up, you know, I became a teenager in the early 2000s um, when the invasion of Iraq was starting to unfold. Um, and I remember the way that that invasion was really sold to people in Kuwait was there was this huge advertising campaign. Um, it would be on the TV channels and stuff. And it was basically all these people who lost someone in the occupation back in the 90s. And, you know, there are like pictures of kids or women or men holding up, um, or like, you know, people holding up pictures of people that they lost and saying, you know, I hope when the Americans go into Iraq, they find my dad, or I hope they find my son. I hope they find my uncle, right? Um, it was very emotionally charged um, because there were about 600 POWs that were missing after the occupation and after the war. Um, and that was, you know, nobody knew what really happened to them. And so it was interesting as I was coming of age to see these these things that used to be in the shadows and sort of unspoken, be talked about very openly, or at least as openly as, as it has ever been at that point. Um, and then when I was in my 20s, um, Kuwait had just started to teach um, about the occupation and the war in its curriculum, in its school curriculum, whereas prior it hadn't. Um, and my younger sister actually was one of the first um, generations to actually have that in the classroom. And so 
at that time, you know, my my mom had talked about her experience as a refugee, but my dad had never really talked about it. And so I sort of, in many ways, created this project to really learn about what happened to him um, and what happened to Kuwait and what happened to the people who lived through it and what it feels like in the aftermath. Um, and so I interviewed, I interviewed my parents, but I also interviewed a number of other people of different ages and genders and backgrounds and experiences about their time during the occupation and then during the war. And I turned those interviews into, um, I'm also a painter, so I turned those into a series of paintings and a series of poems. And so this is one of those. And the other thing, I guess the, the one last thing is, the title of this poem is Highway 80. Um, that highway is the highway from Kuwait into Iraq. And at the time in, in 1991, it was known as the Highway of Death because um, the coalition forces, as Iraqi forces were retreating, um, were heavily bombarding that area. Um, and so there was a lot of death along that highway. Um, and that, and it's, it's strange to think now that that's a highway that I've been on numerous times. And like Kuwait is so small, you basically get through the whole country in like an hour and a half tops from one end to the other. Um, and so it's, it's strange to think that I, I'd been on this highway for so long. And in the course of writing these poems and doing this research, I'd, I'd learned about what happened here. And so that's part of the subtext of the poem. Okay. Highway 80. We drive down the highway to Basra specifically for the vendors who sell fruit out of the backs of their trucks. My father stopped on the emergency lane behind the Toyota with a faded license plate and three dusty boys look over at me when I lock myself in. The truck is white like the one my father will later tell me was run over by Iraqi soldiers the family inside pouring out the closed door. In the front seat, I drown out the sounds of bargaining with Voice of America and wait, fingers ready, to unlock his door and drive away, but he lingers. Later at home, he will say, what Saddam suffered was nothing compared to his crimes, and he will slice and blend watermelon into juice, red froth forming on top of every glass. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, it's, it's, it's very powerful uh, to hear that and, um, and very intense, especially with your, with your preamble on that. Uh, you know, for some reason, I imagine it would be even longer because this is, as you're saying, an enormous amount of research, oral histories, um, and witness accounts went into this that were, that were very personal. And I would imagine, you know, getting all those accounts or talking to everybody about it uh, was a difficult process in itself. Um, it was. I, you know, I'm still working on the manuscript um, because I had a lot of hang-ups when I was, I, I guess this would have been my first foray into sort of documentary poetry um, in a sense. And I really kept thinking to myself, and I think I, I had a really great um, team. I did this for my thesis as an undergraduate and, um, you know, I had some brilliant artists that I was working with, um, poets, 
Nicholas Regiacourt and Monica Berlin were part of my advisory board and the painter Lynette Lombard. Um, and then I actually also had as my outside examiner um, the poet Brian Turner, who himself is also a veteran who's written about his experiences in war, specifically in the, um, the 2000s invasion of Iraq. Um, and so I think Monica in particular had, had noted that there was sort of a hesitancy in this project compared to my other writing. Um, she was very familiar with my letters to Jim Harrison. Um, in fact, the two that I read today were actually written um, it, as part of her class when I was in workshop with her. Um, and she noticed that there was sort of a hesitancy, and it took me a while to understand this. At the time, I wasn't sure what she was talking about, but in hindsight now I can see um, there was a lot of personal work put into this. There was a lot of um, documentation. I still have all my notes. I still have the video recordings of all the interviews I did. Um, and I think somewhere along the way, there was this very big weight um, of this project on me. With the letters to Jim Harrison, right, the only person I'm really accountable to um, was myself and my experiences. Um, with this project, it felt like I was giving voice to the experiences of so many other people and of a conflict that really isn't understood very well in the rest of the world, um, pretty much. That, that responsibility, in some ways, I think it hindered me at the time because I don't think I was up for that challenge. Um, but I think now, as I've been working on the manuscript, I can see that and I can really answer the questions of why am I writing this? Who is this for? What is this for? Why are we dredging up these, these memories? And how did this make its way into your paintings? How, how, because you said there's also uh, a series of paintings, it sounds like, that, that, are, that went right along with this research and this work? Yeah, um, so the project ended up, um, I had about 100 poems that I'd written and about 30 to 35 paintings. Um, and I think what it, what it turned into was, um, I think I relied so much more on the paintings in the course of that project, um, just because, so I, I was very much, and I still am, a novice at painting, or I consider myself one. And it was really good to have that additional language to process through because, you know, war is, I mean, it's a literal idea, but it's also such an abstract and the paintings helped me sort of contextualize things. So I would really, in many cases, I would go to paintings first to sort of get these, these feelings and these images out of me. And then I would be able to go to the writing. I think it was very hard for me to go straight to the writing. And so what is the, how are the paintings made? Can you tell me a little bit about them? How are they built, size? Is there a narrative in them? How are they, how do they look? Um, so the, they're all oil paintings. Um, they're on canvas. And it's, it's really interesting. They actually started off very small, I think like uh, 24 by 24 inches um, canvas size, things like that. Um, and in the beginning, it was very much like literal, like I painted images of like, you know, people in front of like tanks and things like that, very literal things that I was hearing about from my interviewees. Um, and then somewhere 
in the process, you know, it stopped being so literal. And it was really just more abstract. It was more about um, just the emotions that I was dealing with. And as that started happening, the paintings actually got bigger. Um, I think the largest painting was maybe 10 feet by, I want to say five feet, something around that um, range. And it was nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a small person too. I want to say like I'm like five one, so I was I was really reaching there. Um, but that's really interesting. I mean, it, and I'm glad you mentioned your height because then these paintings are kind of larger than life. They're heroic in a, in in a way that that poetry can't be. I mean, on a physical scale. And mm-hmm. it sounds like if they're abstract, the the gestures in themselves, uh, and just stop me if I'm reaching, but the gestures in themselves and and this kind of monument they're making are 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 somehow about physicality, about about movement, about about as you say, I think you use the word energy, but uh, mm-hmm. but something kind of purely, uh, I don't know if emotional is the right word, but something something physical, a force that's quite different than 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 your poems of, of course uh but um but does that does that make sense does that sound right or is that a little of a reach there no i i think that's perfect that actually reminds me of, of, of a poem in the series that is exactly about what you just described um is i don't know if we have time for it or not but it's um it really was this idea that um we do. Let's let let let's go to the poem. If you have, if you oh. want to read that poem, that would be great. This poem yeah, sure. you're saying re- relates to the painting and what we're discussing now. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, it's called skirmish. More, the eyes that should be shriveled, dust, a lifeless planet not turning on its axis, the roundness, a woman open without skin, a man preserved hunched over, exposed each bone to shape our form, shoulders stacked inescapable for the most part, the spine, a pattern to build the body. Every casualty seemed minor, 1,000 dead, a minor war with minor consequences in six weeks for a small country that should have been decimated, cried over like some genocide. The truth is, Everything is small in Kuwait, even our tragedies. A man says there were a lot of parties and no one suffered a lack of booze in this occupation. He throws back his hand, swathing some broken image in mind, a hospital bed with bloody sheets, his father with a pistol to the head. He talks more. Another keeps his ID card in his back pocket when his hair was black like his eyes. He makes a point to show it to me. Thank you. And and in and in relationship to the paintings that we were discussing, how does that one relate to the painting? Um, just this idea of you know, the, the paintings were really as you said, they were becoming much more physical, much more grand, much bigger and, and I think in that I think the term you used was heroic um, and I think that fits, you know, it's very much as small as, you know, the poem is really about the smallness of the conflict in, in terms of the larger scheme of things. 
but as small as the conflict really is and was in many ways, um, it felt so much larger. And I think that mm-hmm. the paintings getting bigger um, and getting more abstract was really just a reflection of not just the war itself, but also the feeling of living in the shadow of it. Um, because Kuwait rebuilt itself literally within a few months. So like my, my father, my parents, their story was um, they had to leave Kuwait. They stayed for as long as they could. Um, but then they started getting direct threats. Um, and so they couldn't stay any longer. So they drove their car um, from Kuwait into Iraq, up into Turkey, and then all the way down into Pakistan. Um, it was a very long journey for them, and it was, it was very harrowing, and they saw, they experienced a lot of things that I think scarred them. Um, but, you know, that's the context that I was growing up in. The rest of the world, it was six weeks, this happened, it's over, we're done. Um, but for Kuwait, this was a huge ordeal, and there weren't really the words to describe that. And so I think it was like the paintings had to become physical. They had to be that manifestation of what it really felt like to to live in that shadow. So, you know, my parents leave to Pakistan, and then my dad comes back only a few months after Kuwait is liberated. I think he came back in June or May of that same year, you know. And when he came back, um, part of what the retreating Iraqi army did was they burned a lot of the oil fields. And so there was a huge um, cleanup mission needing to be done in Kuwait. Um, And, you know, my dad vividly remembers coming back to Kuwait and seeing a really black sky, and he thought it was night, but it was the middle of the afternoon. Um, There was just that much ash in the sky that it was raining down. Um, So I think, you know, that's really, that was, I think I really needed those paintings for this project at the time, just because I didn't have the words to say, like, yes, it's small. Yes, there are probably bigger issues, definitely bigger issues in the rest of the world, and this may not matter to many people, but this is what it felt like. I mean, how do you describe a world of ash? Yeah, that's an extraordinary image and um, and something, yeah, that does sound indescribable. It's, it's thank you so much for reading that, that one more poem. I'm glad we talked about that and your paintings. I, I want to ask you one more question, which is what are you reading at the moment? Um, right now, it's, it's currently National Poetry Month, so I'm reading a lot of poetry books, and I gave myself the task of trying to read 30 books in 30 days, which I'm clearly failing at. Like, I'm not even close to that number, and we're almost at the end of April. Um, but a book that I really love that actually came out this month is If God is a Virus by Seema Yasmin. Um, she is an epidemiologist in addition to being a journalist and a poet and writer in general. Um, and it's very, like, it's a very beautiful connection between science, between art, um, between, you know, the secular and the religious and so many beautiful, beautiful coalescings of different ideas. And it also, you know, in this time of a pandemic, it's just so great to read. Um, I think that we just, I'm so interested to see 
how this time is contextualized as we go forward in art. I am too. Well, that sounds fascinating. Uh, Rana, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time and the, and, and the work you're doing. Thank you so very much. <laughs> thank you. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.